Well, I don't know about you guys, but it's hard to believe that it's November already. I mean, three weeks away from Thanksgiving, and then a mere month away, right, from Christmas. And I see a number of you just like, wow, yeah, it's, it's surreal that it's upon us. And many of us are going to be traveling to go see family and friends. And this is going to provide us with the opportunity to watch people when we're out and about. Have you ever sat at the airport or at a coffee shop and over the top of your newspaper or over the top of your cup of your coffee just enjoyed watching people? Anybody out there? How many people watchers do I have out there? Yeah, there's a number of you out there. Thank you for being brave. Uh, Sometimes when you're stuck at the airport, you're really left no choice. And so it can actually be a great consolation for those of us that actually enjoy watching people as we're forced to sit and wait somewhere. And you can make observations about people, and you can see them, uh, watch them as they interact with their environment. And at the airport, you'll notice that some people are doing what? They're making that mad dash to connect, you know, get to their connecting flights, running, just trying to make it. And then you have those people who are like totally laid out on the seats, right? Zonked, extended layover. And they're just like, oh, man, I'm just going to crash here for a while. Some people are on their cell phones and laptops working very intensely, while there's others who are just merely surfing the web or listening to their Pandora playlist and just trying to relax and pass time. In most instances, people lose sight of the fact that they're consistently being watched. By someone. And this may surprise you, but Jesus was a people watcher. In all four gospel accounts, we see stories and, and witness him making observations about people as they interact with their environments. He was not only watching their actions, what they were doing, but he had the divine ability to see their motives, why they were doing what they were doing. Today, as we continue our study in the closing verses of Mark chapter 12, we'll see and witness Jesus' people watching. And neither the widow, the principal focus of Jesus' attention, nor the rest of the people had any idea that they were being watched. What observations will Jesus make? What principles of application can we draw from this study? And how does the Lord want you and I to be impacted as he observes the motives of their hearts? In our current context, Jesus is calling us to be aware of the religious deception and identity of Israel's leaders before warning us again of their damning influence in Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. Let's read it again, starting at verse 38. The NASB translation says this. In his teaching, Jesus was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. 
poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that we need your help for this passage to fully impact our hearts. I pray that your spirit would guide us, that you would illuminate our understanding so that we can be challenged by it. It is a heavy text. There are warnings. And with that, there'll come a weight that we'll feel with this that we may not feel as intensely with another study. And so I just pray that you'll help us to see why you have shared this and um, what you want our hearts to take away and how you want us to be impacted for your name's sake. We commit this time to you. We ask that you'll bless our study in great measure. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday we introduced two warnings that Jesus provides in this passage. Both warnings expose the hypocrisy of Israel's leaders so that we see the danger of promoting a religious identity outside of Christ. Both warnings also help us understand why they'll receive a greater condemnation. And if you weren't with us last Sunday, I would encourage you to go back on our website and you can listen to that message online as time won't allow us to review the entire sermon. A brief synopsis of point number one will have to suffice. In the first warning, Jesus called us to beware of the religious deception. And we focused on verses 38 through 40. Israel's religious leaders like to be exalted. And in the parallel account, Jesus says in Matthew 23, they do all of their deeds to be noticed by men. And they do what they do to promote themselves and their religious identity. And then we considered their robes and recognition. They deceptively wore robes so that they would be identified and connected with temple worship. Like a Halloween costume, they did it for the sake of appearance. Their holy attire reflected an external righteousness that was divorced from the heart. They also sought recognition by forcing people to acknowledge them in public, in the marketplaces. They would walk around intentionally in their robes so that people had to give them a religious salute. They had a prideful, first-class attitude as they expected to sit in first-class seats while they looked down upon those considered lower in religious rank. Jesus then warned us by exposing their hypocrisy and love of money. Not only did they promote a deceptive religious image and identity, but they were involved in deceptive practices. Evidence of this is seen in verse 40, describing them as those who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. And we talked about what that reflected. We learned that Jesus strategically featured their mistreatment of widows because God's word provides so many exhortations and regulations that they would have known about on how widows were supposed to be a protected people. They were helpless. Passages like Exodus 22, 22 
Isaiah 10.2, and Malachi 3.5. What picture comes to mind when you think of the helpless being helped by the Lord? Right? How about Romans 5.6? For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's a picture of helplessness, isn't it? For New Testament believers, it points us to the greatest reflection of God's grace found in the gospel. And though the gospel was veiled in the Old Testament, God still put his mercy on display through his promises for the deliverance from sin through the righteousness of faith for his people to see, especially the leaders of Israel. Israel's leaders were supposed to have a special regard for widows and orphans and the poor because it reflects God's mercy and grace for his people. With all this clearly known, the scribes who we said, who knew the scriptures better than anyone, deceptively took advantage of widows in their estates. Instead of helping them, they were hurting them for their own benefit. And as a result, Jesus exposes their unbelieving hearts and shared at the end of verse 40, these will receive greater condemnation, which serves as our title. We covered the misconception that the wrath of God isn't the same for all people. God's word about harsher judgment for those who misrepresent him and live lives of religious hypocrisy is going to be greater not only are we to beware of their religious hypocrisy, but now the second warning is conveyed in verses 41 through 44. Take a look with me. Warning number two, beware of their damning influence. And notice the word and at the beginning of verse 41. This, there's some conjunctions in scripture that are more important than others, and this would be one of them. This connects the previous context to our current context. This connects what Jesus had just said with what he is now watching. Some translations like the NIV, the most distributed Bible translation on the planet, by the way, leave and out. And they lose sight of the connection. And, and, and you can't miss the context. Jesus went right to the temple treasury and began intently observing how the people were giving their tithes. And the scene in the temple treasury is in the court of the women. Not because it was specifically for women, but because it was the nearest point to the temple building proper, which was open to women. Inside the temple treasury were 13 shofar or trumpet-like chests designed to receive monetary offerings. And they would have looked something like this. I've got a PowerPoint picture to, to pull up of a temple treasure chest, box shape with brass funnels that looked like a trumpet or a shofar where money could be deposited. And you'll notice how the narrowing of these funnels and they served as deterrence so that thieves or that even little children couldn't stick their arms down in and take money out. See that? And inside these, there's actually these brass spikes on the inside. And if kids stuck their arm, they would get stuck in there. And the only way to get, I'm just kidding. <laughs> is to rip their arm off. 
Okay, that would make it a little bit more exciting. No, no, no spikes on the inside, though it did serve as a deterrent. According to the Mishnah, each of these chests bore inscriptions designating what the offerings were for. One chest was for the, the new uh, uh, shekel dues, the, the, the tax that they had to pay. It was a half shekel. And then there was another one just like that set up for the, the old shekel dues. And so if you missed uh, the previous year or the previous feast and you were coming, there would be this chest for back taxes, right? Yes, back taxes have existed for a long, long time, even starting with Israel, right? And if you were there and you're up to date on your taxes, well, you just went ahead and you, you gave the half shekel tax that was due in the, in the new chest. The other 11 chests were for bird offerings, another one for young birds for the whole offering, another one for wood, another one for frankincense, Another one for gold for the mercy seat. And then six of them were free will offerings. You could just give uh, in support of the temple and for the sake of others. Though the half shekel tax was required for every man, any contribution to the other chests were, were, were completely voluntary and would be noticed by anyone who, like Jesus and his disciples, are watching at Passover. This would have been a major tourist attraction, and it was common just to come see how the money bags and 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 just be blown away at some of the donations that were coming in. Jesus is watching many rich people putting in lots of money, just as verse forty-one states. Then he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people. We're putting in large sums. Every offering was designated. Every offering was announced by the priest to verify its authenticity and that it went to the designated chest that it was supposed to go. Remember, the Lord not only is watching this, but he can see and he has the divine ability to see right into the heart. And to see the motivation and why they were giving. What do you think he saw? He could see the pride of those who were doing it for the sake of recognition. He could see those who were serving legalism. And, and, and hopes that their giving would work towards their redemption. He could see many people coming to Passover out of duty and obligation instead of coming out of a genuine desire to worship the Lord. And this is how the people had been impacted by the damning influences of Israel's leadership. And this hits real close to home, doesn't it? And it should. And again, I realize, just as I pray, that there's a gravity with these with this passage as we looked at the first warning last week and this warning this week, and there should be. These are warnings that the Lord wants us to learn from so that we can take them to heart. Can I ask you a few deeply personal questions? Why did you come to church this morning? 
what was the primary motive of your heart? If you just, just you be honest with yourself. In this moment, why you came, did you think about it? And it's easy for us to get caught up in tradition, isn't it? It's easy for us just to say it's habit forming, it's the right thing to do, right? And for our minds to get divorced from worship. Was it out of a genuine desire to worship and praise God? Was it to stimulate others to love and good deeds? Was it to serve the Lord by serving others and to be encouraged in your faith? Was it because your identity is in Christ and you have to be here? You want to be here. Or did you come out of duty and obligation? Did you come simply to be recognized by others? Because your parents made you come. Because your your spouse expects you to be here as well. Because you are, are serving a religious identity. Israel's leaders promoted their religious deception by promoting their own religious identity. And they practiced their righteousness before men and their damning influence was taught to the people of Israel to do the same thing, which put them in great spiritual danger. Listen to what Jesus says about their damning influence in the parallel account in Matthew 23, which I invite you to turn there because we're going to reference it just for the next couple minutes. Matthew 23, verse 13 Jesus is about to go on a series of woes here, eight of them. And this is the first, starting in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? Why woe to them? He's going to qualify it right here. Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And verse 14 will sound very familiar. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. They're going to be recipients of a greater condemnation, as we confirmed last week, because they led people down a condemning path. And they're the ones responsible for it, it's their influence. Jesus emphasizes the reality in the second woe, too, and, or this should be the third, if we count, verse 14 and verse 15. Look at it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte or a convert, in most cases be Gentile, unless somebody was being brought back to, to the faith. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. That's heavy. And it should be. And he's just getting started. We don't have time to go through all of them. But their, their damning influence of legalism and works righteousness was leading others down the same path. And the context here is identical to Mark chapter 12. The only difference is that Jesus is going to include these eight woes in Matthew's gospel account because it was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And so if anybody needed to hear this, they did even more so. 
Their damning influence was misguiding the rich by encouraging them to literally buy into their work righteousness system of legalism. And also encouraged the wealthy to cultivate the same sinful attitude that they carried toward the poor and needy. The scribes and Pharisees, you'll recall, claimed that widows and orphans were under God's judgment. But those who were doing okay financially, who were actually those who were getting wealthy, were receiving blessing from the Lord. So they're on the right spiritual track. These were damning lies spread through their influence. Not only did their damning influence misguide the rich, but as we've already seen, it led to abusing the poor. Look at verse 42. A poor widow came, put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. As Jesus watches, he then sees something unusual. A widow. An especially poor widow. He probably would have noticed this by the, the way she was dressed and the way that she was carrying herself in her appearance. She came up to the priests and the money boxes and put in two small copper coins called lepta. And Mark defines these coins as amounting to one cent. A lepton was the smallest Palestinian coin available. And Logos had this really cool picture that I wanted to show you guys. And these are actually pictures of different coins that are used throughout uh, the, the gospel accounts. You can see, starting at the very top, is the half shekel, which would have been used to pay that, that tax, right? And then you see a, a full silver shekel, and that is what uh, Judas was compensated with, 30 shekels of silver, when he betrayed the Lord. And I know that font is really small. There was no way to really keep it. It was in a picture, so um, I'm not that tech savvy to, 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 to get there, but... Then, then I want you to just keep moving down. Um, we see the silver denarius on the left. Okay, and it, it also it basically is sharing what one of these coins could buy. A denarius was a day's wage. It says that it could uh, buy approximately 15 pounds uh, of wheat in a basket. And then we have the bronze pruda. And let me see what that says because my eyes are struggling to see it. It was uh, the common coin worth only one sixty-fourth of a denarius. And this could buy a, a third of a pound of bread. And then we have the coins that are used in our account today. Right here, the, the lepton, which is the singular form. And so the, there was two of them and that's why they're, they're called lepta here. And this is, is Mark 12. Notice on the hand, just the size, right? This, this is the smallest possible coin. Now, how much would two leptas be in practical measure? Let me, let me just share this. They could purchase one handful of flour, enough for one small meal for one person, and according to our Lagos photo, it could also buy you a bath in a, in a public bathhouse. Jesus knew that she gave everything she had because she would have kept one back if she would have kept anything back. 
Now, how does this picture serve as a warning to us? This woman is is evidence of a totally abusive religious relationship. She is under the control of the scribes and is a victim of a false promise of legalism from the scribes. Jesus is not drawing a principle on giving from this passage. And if you don't make the and and make the connection to the previous context, there are some that have taught this as a passage on giving. But it's not. It's to show that the damning influence that the scribes and the Pharisees had on the people. And so Jesus, he's just watching. And his disciples, they're just watching him as he's watching. And this poor widow is a victim. And is a tragic example of how scribes devoured widows' houses. The scribes kept imposing the guilt of giving the minimum to the temple regardless of their living conditions and regardless of their need to survive. And it's highly likely as Jesus is just, you can imagine what's going on in, in the heart of the Lord as he's watching this take place. I would imagine he is just, there's righteous anger that is taking place. As, as this corrupt system is forcing those who have nothing to give what little that they have. But this is the truth. This widow was trying her best to love God with all her heart, all her soul, and all her mind. She loved God, we know, with all of her wealth. Yet the scribes would do no such thing. Even the the rich people were only loving God with a part of their wealth. And the irony here is that the scribes are the ones that are holding her in contempt. Viewing her with contempt. At that time, early in the first century, there was a popular anonymous Jewish story, probably anonymous for good reason, in the Midrash that says, quote, Once a woman brought a handful of fine flour, and the priest despised her, saying, See what she offers? What is there in this to eat? What is there in this to offer up? It was shown to him in a dream. Do not despise her. It is regarded as if she had sacrificed her own life. The point is this, that the scribes and religious leaders only viewed quantity as valuable. People who were weak and poor, again, this is their mindset. This is how they thought. They must be under God's judgment. They had a false retribution mentality just like job and his friends did right it was when 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 you had much you you were blessed and when it was taken away then then you're cursed again the scribes easily should have known for for the weak the orphan and the widow that they were under god's special protection In the Old Testament, you'll even recall that the Lord instructed all of Israel's farmers not to pick everything, right, on the stalks. And that they would leave a little bit behind so that the poor could come, the widow, the orphan, that they could come and they could actually pick it 
and, and, and would be able to find something to eat. This reflects God's mercy and his means to help them. But even with all this in place, the religious and prideful scribes treated widows like lepers. Their damning influence also led others to treat them in the same way, to abuse them, to neglect them. The religious deception and damning influence of Israel's leaders is complete with this picture. They created a legalistic system that promoted their own religious identity and misrepresented the Lord. And worse yet, they were leading others to follow their damning influence as well. Important for us to note here is that Jesus is not condemning the scribes for what they instructed others to do as much as he's condemning their hypocrisy that showed how their hearts were divorced from the word of God and from worship. In the parallel account, and if you look there in Matthew 23, uh, up at verses 1 through 4, it helps us see this clearly where it says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, look, do and observe. But then he qualifies it. But do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. What is Jesus ultimately saying here? Don't dismiss, don't disregard God's word because of these hypocrites. It's still important, right? It still needs to be obeyed. But he's also saying don't find your identity in their religious deception, nor be influenced by their deeds. And now he's going to tell his disciples and us what this is all about. Turn back to Mark 12 in in our final two verses. Verse 43 of Mark chapter 12. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Is this a lesson on money or tithing? And if that's the case, why wouldn't Jesus continue to speak to the crowd at large so that they could also benefit? But he doesn't, does he? Instead, Jesus calls his disciples close to him and begins with these important words. Truly, I say to you, When Jesus says truly, he's basically saying amen, which means let this be so. And it's not uh, an applaud for the accuracy of of truth, but it's it's pointing to the, the, the fact that it's a proclamation of the truth as he drops another truth bomb upon their thinking. What is the shocking truth that he discloses? The surprise to his disciples would be that from a financial standpoint, It is irrelevant how much one ties or gives financially to God. 
The disciples that had been around this corrupt, pay-to-pray, pay-to-play religious system for so long that just like the people, it was more than likely that their minds had been influenced by it as well. Jesus calls them forward to help them understand that this isn't about wealth. This is about worship. This is about devotion. And the same is true when it comes to our offerings at church on Sundays. The money or how much you give isn't as important as the worship or the heart devotion that stands behind it. And that's a challenge for our heart just as we, we, we consider this. Is, my, is, is that an act of worship? should be, right? Is it an act of obligation? Shouldn't be. Very important for us to see that. God wants the heart behind the gift, right? And, and we're living in a time where it's just convenient to just automatically have it set up so that it's same month, and we, we have this great problem that we have in our, in our tithing, don't we? Do, do we tithe from our gross or our net? I mean, that's really the battle. No. No, it's got nothing to do with the financial amount. It's got everything to do with the heart. Everything. Everything. And it should change from month to month because life changes from month to month. And you may not be able to give this much, that that much because, uh, this month because of circumstances that happened. But there may be another opportunity for you to give more on another month because you're blessed. Right? It's about the heart. And Jesus said these two leptas that this woman contributed were far greater than everyone else. And there were many rich people putting in silver and gold. And what is the measure? They gave from their surplus while she gave from her poverty. Her heart was devoted regardless of her financial circumstances. That's what we see here. This wasn't about money for her. It was about worship and devotion to the Lord. R. Kent Hughes describes the scene this way. She undoubtedly approached the trumpets quietly, almost stealthily, head bowed, hoping to draw no attention to herself. Though she did not know Jesus was watching, she knew that God saw her. And that was whom she came to please. Seen in the whole context of chapter 12, this is a withering reproach to the earthbound rationalism of the scribes and Pharisees. Her humble motivation could be nothing but love. She was living out the Shema, loving God with all that she had. When she slipped the two coins into the mouth of the trumpet, they fell inaudibly against the shekels of the rich. But she had given all. An 18th century commentator beautifully noted that she gave two, one of which the widow might have retained. She gave everything. On this Passover, she was silently saying to God, I love you. All I have is yours. Here's my heart, my life. End quote. What does it mean to love God with everything? You give all. You, you give all. And I want you to think about the, 
the, the, the timing and the significance of Jesus having this moment right here in Mark's gospel and what lies ahead. He was less than 48 hours away from giving all on the cross. The disciples are mere weeks away from going out on the commission to give all. And we know this, right? That it cost them their lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel. The widow in many ways, foreshadows and reflects the devotion necessary for every follower of Christ. It will take all that we have. There is no exception. There is no factoring. There is no curve. God wants all. And you need to hear this. He's happy with leptas. He's happy with leptas. One commentator shared, God can do great things with tiny offerings, those two pennies equaling a quarter of a cent, even quietly with a widow's motive, have produced more for the kingdom in the intervening 2,000 years than all other gifts presented that Passover week. End quote. That, That is a marvelous thought, isn't it? Powerful to think about. How have her two coins impacted the faith of others over the centuries? How are they going to impact us? What is going to be the takeaway from this message? What is going to be the impact? This woman gave the equivalent of a handful of flour her last meal. This means that even though she was being abused by a corrupt religious system, She still had enough trust in God to wait on him for her next meal. She was now totally dependent upon God. And this was easy for Jesus to see, yet he wanted his disciples to see this stark contrast between the corrupt religious pretense of the scribes with the pure, humble faith of this widow. Would they likewise be willing to give it all? Would they likewise persevere when met by resistance from the religious establishment? Would they trust the Lord by faith? Would they likewise find their identity in the Lord and escape the damning influence of religion and be a testimony of faith that others could follow? What does the Lord really want us to take away from this passage. Let's start with what he doesn't want. Does God want widows or anyone else to sell their house and everything they own and give it to the church so that they can then become a burden on the church? No. On the other hand, does God want you and I to save up all our resources because we have given enough or our fair share? No. Money and everything connected to it can easily turn into an idol. It is a root of all sorts of evil. And the Lord exposed this reality when he said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Matthew 6.21, after he warns us about building up a stockpile of wealth on this earth. What idols are our hearts tempted to serve? This is what God is most concerned with. 
Not what you give, but what you keep back. And why? That's the real question. Not how much we give, what do we keep back? What do we hold back and why? God hates idols. God knows that idols turn people into scribes. People who dismiss the needs of others and who will serve their own religious identity and their own religious agenda and not his. This is what the Lord really wants us to take away. He wants us to be a people of faith and devotion. He wants us to see him for who he truly is as Lord and to trust in him completely. He wants us to completely and utterly depend upon him. And this is why God demonstrates his faithfulness throughout the scriptures. And he did so for Israel's benefit, and they should know this. He gave Israel manna in the desert to feed them, but then he gave them nothing on the Sabbath. So they didn't have to pick. Why? It also tested their faith that he was going to give them twice as much on Friday, right before the weekend, Friday, payday, right? That the Lord is going to provide. Every seventh year, Israel would not farm, trusting God that he would provide three years' worth of harvest. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 25. Being devoted to God is depending on him and demonstrating your trust in him as the Lord provides exactly what we need. Another takeaway related to our devotion is to make sure that we are establishing and keeping our identity in the Lord. Why is this essential to our our spiritual walks? It keeps us focused on the Father's will for our lives. Jesus serves as the ultimate example in this regard. Constant devotion. Constant prayer. Constantly focused on my Father's business. Establishing and keeping our identity on who we are in Christ helps us to be deeply invested in spiritual labors and not get sucked into serving the things of this world. And I think a good reflection that I mentioned earlier, profitable for all of us, is to spend some time meditating this week. So often we think about what we're, what we're doing and, and, and what we're giving but we don't think about it from that other angle. What are we holding back? Am I holding back time from the Lord? Am I holding back effort? Am I holding back the practice of my spiritual gifts? Am I holding back resources, including money, from the Lord's work? What are you holding back from God? What am I holding back from God? We have to, we have to address that. And we should because... Idols will surface if we don't. One of the best indicators of the heart and a good starting point is to look at your checkbook in your bank statement. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the Lord understands we provide for our families. We've got to put food on the table. We've got to pay electric bills. All the means of life which he provides for, he understands that. But then as it relates to surplus, what is the investment? 401k, all of it, dump it into 401k, got to be able to retire. 
And I understand there's a balance as it relates to stewardship issues and paying off your house is a good thing because, right, you, you'll be freed up from a mortgage and that will give you greater finances. But it shouldn't take away from the fact that there's, you don't even know if you're going to live long enough to pay off your house, my friend. Invest now. And that's speaking just to the financial aspect. What about the time? Does it reveal any idols? Am I spending so much time on hobbies and recreation, movies, video games, golf, football, shopping, whatever, whatever? We know it. We live in Southern California. We're exposed to it all. Again, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is probably one of the most profound things as, as I was studying this week that really just impacted me. When Jesus is your Lord, you will not be concerned with how much you give. You will be concerned with whether you could have given more. right? And I think that's going to be true. And, and, and so this is our exhortation. And you've heard similar exhortations i'm sure before right but this is how this is why we gather corporately sunday after sunday to to stimulate one another to love and good deeds this is why we get together so that we do stay focused on the lord's work and and that we're 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 investing spiritually in the lives of other people through our time through the use and steward stewarding of our gifts and yes, through our resources, which also includes money. At the beginning of this message, I shared that Jesus, he's a really good people watcher. Many people being watched, we lose sight of the fact that we're being watched, don't we? How, how true for Christians. It really is. We, we, we lose sight of the fact and that he's watching us. And not only does he see what we're doing, but he sees the motive behind the heart. And it's my hope that this passage of Scripture serves as a great encouragement, not a discouragement. That would be unprofitable. But a great encouragement so that we continue to persevere in our faith and continue to seek ways that we can magnify Christ and put his identity on display for the world to see. And may its warnings also remind us of the spiritual dangers of pursuing a religious identity that's outside of the Lord, along, along with the damning influence that this can have on other people. That's it. That's it. And so this is an exhortation to each of your hearts as it is to mine. And i got to wrestle with this all week long, right? And, and, and convicted in so many ways, right? Let's see what we're holding back. Church, let's see what we're holding back. What can God do with 150 people who don't hold anything back? Let us see. Let us see together as a church family and, and be committed to discipleship and be invested in our care groups and making sure that we are giving our time and our talents to the church, that we are investing 
You know, one of the things, and we haven't even talked about it, but I think it's a, a fitting place just to even include this at, at the end. Everyone knows that we have a LTF, lay the foundation, as it relates to us hopefully um, purchasing our own building one day. And again, it doesn't mean that we're, uh, we're, we, we stop because we need to pay off a building before we can invest in the Lord's work. You guys know that. We're, we're still deeply and heavily invested in the lives of missionaries and the life of ministry within the body. But in order for us to get into a facility we're going to need giving to increase dramatically. We would. We would need a deeper commitment so that we can buy a building. We have approximately, I would say, close to a million dollars in our building fund. And we currently are on a 11,000 square foot property. Okay. We would need something that's going to be closer to 15 to 20,000 square feet. And in Orange County, a place like that is going to be anywhere from uh, four to five, maybe even six million dollars, right? And so, one million years ago, maybe a one uh, a one million dollar down payment might, might have got you um, a little bit f further down the road. But I'm just being candid, and um, I, I just think that this is an opportunity for us just even to consider as we're we're moving forward as we continue to invest in the body. As we invest in the church, we're filling up. Praise God, right? We're going to need more seats. And we're going to have the holidays. People are going to be here. We're going to need more seats. We're going to need a bigger church. That's a praise to his glory. Praise to his glory. Pray with me. Father, we bow our heads. And again, I, I feel the weight. And I know that other people do too. Just as we had our hearts uh, surgical surgery, spiritual surgery performed on them as, as they were laid bare before this text, before the reality of this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do the work that um, only you can do by the power of your Holy Spirit and the transforming work of your Spirit to change us so that we continue to die to self, that we continue to pick up our cross daily, and that we continue uh, to lay our lives down for the sake of Christ's identity and the gospel being proclaimed and disciples being made. And Lord, we know that this requires us to surrender. Surrender a lot of things. In fact, that's why the call is to pick up our cross, because we have to lay down our life. In many ways, the widow in her testimony serves as a great example of devotion to us. We have to surrender all. And yet we know that we can trust you through the process that you will provide. And we just pray that your wisdom will prevail in our hearts as we continue to move forward in faith. We look forward, Father, to what Second Hour brings and all the top Sunday prayer requests that we can pray about and how we can even begin now by bearing the burdens of those in our church family and loving and caring for them. Thank you, Father, for this time. We commit our fellowship and second hour to you as well. We ask that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.